Hello and welcome to Miles in the Mitten podcast episode six. Your hosts are yours truly, Ryan Squanda and Colin Riley. And today we had pretty much the ultimate guru of Michigan track, running, you name it, to have on a podcast. We had Jeff Hollibaugh. He's a writer and editor of Track and Field News, a self-professed stats nerd at michigantrack.org. And today was probably my favorite interview we've had so far. Jeff has pretty much a story for any name you give him. And he gave us some really great like behind the scenes stories today. And uh, I think you guys are really going to enjoy listening to this one. Yeah, Ryan. I mean, to, to echo what you're saying, like hearing Jeff talk was like asking Siri a question. Like he just, he spouted gems upon gems of track lore and not just from the last 20 years, not just from the last 40 years. He was talking about you know, 1930s, 1940s, 1890s, and he knows everything. So in this episode, you know, we talk about very, very recent. We talked about a workout that Hobbs Kessler ran today, and it's an insane workout. So you want to listen for those splits and check it out. We talked about the MHSAA. We talked about Grant Fisher, Earl Jones, Paul McMullen. It was super, super awesome. You guys are in for a treat in this one. Just so many stories. We could probably have uh, Jeff on again just to hear some some more stories about just his time covering the sport and getting to know like all the people. And he he's, has a lot of pride in the people who come from Michigan, especially. So sit back and uh, relax or I don't know what you're doing. Maybe you're on a run right now, but just enjoy. Hello and welcome to Miles in the Mitten episode six. Today we have Jeff Hollibaugh. He is a writer and editor for Track and Field News and a self-professed stats nerd at MitchTrack.org. Jeff, thank you so much for taking some time to talk with us today. I know you've had a pretty crazy busy few days here, you know, covering the national championship, uh, NCAA indoor meet, and then of course, uh, probably keeping track of the uh, national championship cross country yesterday. So I guess, how, how are you holding up after uh, those uh, big days? I, I'm beat, honestly. I mean, Sunday, Monday, now today's Tuesday, it's all felt like one long Monday to me. Um, <laughs> just but yeah, the, uh, we did really intensive coverage of the NCAA indoor, you know, an article for every event, et cetera. And, uh, and the timeline we were operating on was pretty fast. I mean, we had to re- turn it around really quickly. So it was a really intense couple of days. And then ever since then, I've been in a daze. Luckily, we had a couple of our correspondents cover the cross country. So I could, I could watch the NCAA cross country, but I didn't have to do anything except proofread. So that was a nice little break. Yeah, awesome. And I, I know there was uh, several pretty impressive performances by people from Michigan or representing Michigan schools. And I'm sure uh, we'll probably get into that today. But I guess before, before we do that, we'll kind of run back, I guess, into the, the, your origin story. So I guess way, way back in the day, or I don't know how, how far, I mean, I'm only 27, not to call you old or anything, but uh, uh, how did you originally get interested in the sport of running? Ah, oh, God, that's, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, a long, long time ago. I mean, I hated sports growing up. I absolutely despised sports. I would not watch football, baseball, anything. There was no sport that liked me uh, until, um, you know, I got my arm got twisted by my locker partner in ninth grade. And I was made to go out for track because my brother at the time was a, you know, a good local track runner. And so they're like, oh, you're a hullabang. You need to run track. So they made me run track. And um, 
you know, I, I average success, I guess, for an average town and running. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, I, I kind of fell in love with it because it's the only sport that seemed to like me back. Um, and, uh, you know, I was okay in high school. I made it to one state meet. I was a 437 miler, 948 two miler. So nothing, nothing special, you know, certainly not in the realm of the all state people I talk to all the time. And, you know, it seems like everyone's all state in something nowadays. Um, but, uh, yeah, but I, but I also just really got into the numbers aspect of it. And I don't know why, I don't know what was wrong with my brain that, um, made it seem like this was a great idea to spend this, this much time on. But, uh, yeah, I remember, um, my brother's junior year in high school, he was uh, undefeated until the state finals in the two mile. So I thought, wow, he must be pretty fast because he had run, I think, 945. Um, and so I started put, putting together a list like all the fastest guys ever and just using every resource I could find as a, as a 14 year old using a public library. Um, probably not a very good list. But uh, yeah, I just started doing that. And then at some point, it's like, well, I wonder what the fastest milers are. And I started putting that together. What were the fastest, you know, 800 guys, um, all based on Michigan high school, because that's what I know. Um, and uh, yeah, the, and the stats just kind of stuck. I just kept doing it. Even while I, you know, I trained for other jobs, I got a teaching certificate. I worked in public relations for a while, but the stats were always something that I, I did for fun. And then um, I guess the big break for me was I, uh, right about the time I finished my teaching certificate, I, in fact, I got offered my first job right in this point. Um, I found out there was a job opening at track and field news out in California. And that that's a magazine I'd been reading since I was 14. And I was like, I memorized every issue. And, and so an opening there, I just went for it. And it was, uh, excruciating, it took probably three months to get hired. Um, and just the weight was excruciating on that. But, uh, and then, yeah, that, that, I guess, set me off on this weird pathway. And Jeff, where did you grow up? Allen Park, Michigan. Yeah. I'm familiar. All right. And where did you go to college? I went to Western Michigan. Um, yeah. Studied history and English there and journalism. Well, sounds like you tackled what Ryan and I did separately in college. I was history and English and, and he was journalism. So look at you. A man of many talents. Um, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> um, but I went the teaching route too, like you, like you did. Um, and uh, I got had that teaching certificate kind of in my back pocket when I went to track and field news. And I was out there for seven years. Um, then we just couldn't afford California anymore. So we came back and I started freelance writing, stayed close to track and field news, but I wasn't an employee anymore. And uh, after about seven years of that, my wife lost her insurance. And I was like, oh my gosh, one of us has to get a teaching job because we both had certificates. So we need insurance. We got two kids. So um, yeah, scrambled and got, got back into teaching or got into teaching for the first time. So I did that for 15 years um, and uh, until I was able to slide back out again. But um, yeah, it was really fun. It's uh, working with kids is so high energy and so, you know, intensity and stress all come together but it's i mean that's that's bo both the beauty and the bane of the profession i mean it's very intense and that part can be thrilling you know so i had fun being a teacher so and i know how hard it is too so i'm impressed that both of you guys are in this absolutely uh what district did you work in starting out in belleville i actually i did a little bit of community college college teaching then i uh 
went to Belleville for a very short time, just a half year until uh, they hired me mid-year. And then I jumped ship the next summer and went to Pinckney for the rest of my time. Yeah. All right. Well, track and field news is, is legendary. And obviously you have a wealth of experiences from that, but what has it been like? And I know Ryan kind of touched on it at the beginning, but has, have these last couple of months been just like a whole new, a whole new beast with covering high school, college, pro cross country, indoor, outdoor road racing. Has this been any other, like any other period of your career or, or is this really brand new? It's really different. No, that's a great question because it really is a different time. Um, it, the stacking up of the seasons is part of it. It's weird. Um, another weird aspect of it is um, obviously we're undergoing a shoe revolution that's dramatically changing times. And I mean, we won't know till this year is over, a couple years over, we can really take a good, good look at what damage has been done here. I mean, in terms of suddenly there's so many more fast people. What does a fast time really mean right now? We're not sure. Um, so that aspect, and then, you know, the pandemic itself has thrown people off so much. Um, we've been doing a lot of interviewing the last few months. Um, my la latest round, I was talking to some of America's top, uh, female 100 meter runners and every interview we do, we have to say, okay, how's the pandemic been for you? I mean, how you been, how you been training? How's it working out? And everyone's got their own stories, but, um, it's just such a crucial moment in the history of our country, but also in the history of our athletics and our, our Olympic team this summer is going to be made up of the ones who figured out how to train during the pandemic and left behind are going to be the people who didn't get the support, didn't have the resources, weren't able to really do the training, especially in say a technical event um, in track and field. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a weird make or break and we won't know until the dust all settles, but um I, yeah, I just think it's a super challenging time. And also think of all the careers that never got started. I mean, for last year plus college track has been, you know, kind of set aside in a way. How many college, I can't even say this right, but how many promising distance runners, let's say, might have emerged last spring? but they didn't get their chance. And then they graduated and they got to worry about grad school and there's no pro, pro contract coming their way, et cetera. And it, it's changed careers and it's changed who we're going to see, you know, in the center ring of the sport, I think for the next few years to come. Yeah. I, I think about that too, about seasons getting canceled. Cause when I was just on the high school level too, you know, in terms of kids maybe getting scholarships and stuff, because I remember I would, I would cover high school, and kids would have huge breakout years where they're dropping all this time. And if they don't have like their seasons, they're not going to drop all that time. So I was just, I felt bad for a lot of kids when they lost out on their senior years last year, especially. Oh yeah. And we're, we're still seeing that, uh, you know, I follow the indoor circuit really closely in Michigan. And while there have been opportunities since uh, February at the, the new lab facility in Ypsilanti, some events, like, the kids just aren't even there. Like where are the high jumpers? You can probably count every active high jumper in the state right now on two hands. Um, and it makes me think that we're missing a whole bunch of kids who haven't made it out there yet or haven't, uh, who've lost their opportunities to train during the pandemic. Maybe segueing into the Michigan high school circuit, I've heard your voice over the loudspeakers at the Division I state finals. How long have you been announcing there? 
Oh, that's um, it's been off and on for over twenty years now. Yeah, that I never, never wanted or planned to be an announcer. Um, that was just always it was just a weird accident. I ended up. There. I remember when I was in college, my first ever announcing experience. I was in college, maybe grad school, and I remember. Yeah, I was married, so I was in grad school, and. It was a weird Saturday back in that portion of my life where I didn't have anything to do on weekends sometimes. And I said to my wife, you know what? There's a state AAU meet in, I don't know, Battle Creek or wherever. I, I'm going to go. Do you want to come? She's like, no. But um, she's <laughs> me. And so I'm at this, uh, you know, state AAU watching these little kids run, just hit a track fix. And um, uh, the announcer, he, something happened. I can't remember exactly what it was, but uh uh, there was a record or something and he didn't realize it. He didn't announce it. And I thought it was pretty significant. So I poked my head into the announcing booth and I said, Hey, you missed, there was actually, that was a state record in the, whatever it was. And the guy just looked at me, threw down his mic, uttered a profanity and said, I'm out of here. That's a last straw. And he just stormed out. And I'm like, Oh, sorry. And there was this <laughs> woman in there. And she looked at me like I'd never seen her before. She looked at me like, you idiot. She's like, well, I'm like, well, what? She goes, well, you better pick up that mic and start talking because <laughs> you're our announcer now because you just had him quit. And, and I'm like, oh, God. So I ended up announcing this meet. And it was one of those dreadful AU meets. That, you know, you hear about them. They they go till two in the morning and, you know, they have car lights shining on the infield and, um just it, it lasted forever. And it, it, one thing, reason it dragged on was there was a major thunderstorm that came through. And I remember that at the time there was this family called the Dukes family from Detroit and they had all, all their kids were runners. And for some reason, when the storm came, they sought shelter underneath uh, my desk. And so I'm trying to announce a meeting, you know, tell people, you know, you know, stay, go to your school buses, hide in your cars during the storm, et cetera. And I had all, all these kids, wet little children shivering around my feet. And it was just the weirdest, the weirdest day. But I guess I think that's when I became an announcer. And then um, the, when I started Division One was, uh, it was in, my first year was 98 in Midland, Michigan. And the AD at the time up there was a guy named Phil Bedford, who actually was a good runner, like All-American for Tennessee at some point. And uh, Phil reached out to me and said, hey, I want you to be the announcer. I'm like, I haven't announced anything in years. And he's like, I want you to do this one. Um, so they got me to do that. And I said, you know what? Here's my problem with announcing. Um, when we had our meeting, I said, in Michigan, okay, I'm used to, I go to meets with track and field. I go to the Olympic trials. I go to Olympics, et cetera. I hear color commentary. I hear people talking about races. And in Michigan, I never hear that. In Michigan, all I hear is first call this, second call this, third call this. And maybe they announced the results of an event two hours after it happened. And I said, I would, if you want me to announce, I'm going to do color commentary. He said, wow, oh, we haven't done that before, but okay, go ahead. And if I don't like it, I'll fire you. And I'm like, deal. That sounds <laughs> totally fair. So um, I announced that meet. And uh, I remember um, it was actually moving to me. There was this one guy in the stands who came up after the meet and he was um, late seventies, maybe, maybe 80. And I never knew or remembered his name. But he came up and he said, I just want to thank you. This is the first meet I've been at in a long time where I knew what was going on. And I really you know, appreciate it. So that 
that has been my guiding light ever since. And, you know, and I've had various officials used to the old way saying, Hey, I want to hear a first call, second call, third call. I'm like, no, you, the clerk can do that with his bullhorn. Kids know where they're supposed to be by the time of the state meet. Um, We're announcing for the fans because my whole idea is I, I really think what excites me is Michigan high school track. And I think it'll excite more people if you kind of tell them what's going on. And so that's why I announced that's why I announced the way I do. I just want to share my enthusiasm. Um, and that's, uh, I don't know, sorry, that's a the long way around, but uh, that's how I ended up at the state beat. So there's been some, I, I haven't done it every year. There've been years where a few years ago for one, one year, the meet at the last minute switched to another site and they had their own guy, the choir teacher announced. And, um, you know, it was half of the announcements were about the half off appetizers at Applebee's and the other half were first call, second call, third call. Um, so, but uh, I'm on track for this year at East Kentwood, June 5th. So very excited about that. Well, I'll, I'll be there hopefully with, with, with some of my team, but uh, do you have some favorite calls that you've had um, while announcing? Yeah, I guess so. Part of, you know, one of the things that happens with announcing for me especially at the division one state finals, it's um, that honestly, and I'm not just saying this because this is a Michigan podcast and a Michigan crowd, the Michigan D one meet and track is my favorite track meet on earth. I would rather spend a day there than at the Olympics. And I've been to seven Olympics. Um, but do you, it's like, I, I feel like I know everyone there. I have something invested in every single race there's kids I care about. There's kids I've followed since they were little, et cetera. And so D1 for me, my head just spins when I'm there. And so it's often the cases I'm announcing a race and it just, it's like, I remember the last one, 2019 was an amazing meet. Not a lot of records fell, but when it was all done, I thought, oh my gosh, I feel like that was the most exciting state meet ever. Just in terms of that race was amazing. This race was amazing. This was amazing. And, um, so, yeah, but there's also this other side of it because I have to be so totally focused to announce. I have to be totally focused to like spot if someone falls or if a relay baton is dropped or, you know, whatever um, I might need to say that as soon as a race is over, no matter how earth shattering it is, as soon as that race is over, I forget it like it's wiped from my mind. So it'll be on the car ride home. And often for many years, I was riding home with my, uh, my daughter, because she would sometimes do the announcing of the awards at the state finals. And I'd be like, okay, what happened in the 800 again? And she'd be like, dad, Donovan Brazier, 148. I'm like, oh, okay, okay. Now I remember. Because um, I would just forget stuff. I'll tell you, my, I guess one of my most memorable, memorable calls for me was um, 2015 state finals. And it was the 1600 with, um, uh, how soon we forget his name, Grant Fisher. Um, but uh, we had there was a conspiracy afoot with that race. And um, I think there's still to this day, some people are a little bit ticked off about it, but they need to really grow up on that one. Um, the deal was this, I'd been uh, dropping in on some of his workouts and talking a lot with his coach. So I kind of knew what was going on backstory wise. And that day uh, he was attempting to break the four minute mile. Now, never in us history has uh, an athlete broken the four minute mile in high school in a 1600 meter race. We, we haven't had yet had to deal with someone running 358 and 1600 meters. And everyone's everyone say, Oh, darn, it's a shame. They didn't measure out a mile for him. It's not a real mile. And 
I was determined not to let that embarrassing thing happen at our state meet. <clears throat> so in cahoots with his coach and with the head timer, we set up uh, three FAD cameras. We had a camera at 1500 meters. We had a camera at the 1600, the official finish line. And we had a camera at 1609.34 meters. And we put some tape on the track there. And um, this, this all was done under the philosophy of it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. So none of this was cleared with the MHSAA. And uh, we even had, um, we thought like, what, what, what if he crosses that 1600 meter line and he forgets to keep going to the mile mark? That can happen. I mean, years ago with Dathan Ritzenheim, there was an indoor state meet where uh, we wanted him to see if he could break the state record in the mile, but it was a 1600 meter race. So we chalked out another finish line. We arranged it with him beforehand. Everything was cool with it. And Dathan crossed the line in the mile in 409, or sorry, 1600 meters in 409. And he forgot and he started slowing to a walk. And we started screaming out, Dathan, go, go. He's like, what? Oh, oh. And he got across, but he, he broke the state record by just um, a few tenths of a second. It was a he ran a 412 and change mile. So instead of the usual one, one and a half seconds to cover that 9.3 meters, it took him like three seconds because he stopped and walked in between. And so we thought, gosh, what if Grant Fisher forgets? What are we going to do? Um, so we actually made up a finish line banner for him to break with his chest. That way he had a visual target that was at the actual mile mark. Um, that we also did not get uh, permission for because we've never done that at a state finals. Um, so I thought, well, maybe it'll be, they'll forgive us more if we put the MHSA logo on it. So I did that the night before I printed out a bunch of logos and I put the MHSA logo on it. And um, we could not announce to the public that they were going for the mile. It was just word of mouth among the runners in that race, you know, because some of them were like, Hey, is there another camera? And, and Fisher said, yeah, yeah, we're going to, we're going to go for a mile here. Not cool, but not all the kids in the race got the message. So I think some people were kind of bummed out about that. But if we had announced it to all those runners, one of them would have told their coach. And you know that in any field of 20 coaches, there's one that's going to go complaining and filing a protest. What? And so was it's not, I mean, coaches love to protest. They protest the weather. Um, so, um, so yeah, we did not announce it. The race starts off. And I'm standing next to Nate Hampton, who at the time was the MHSA's track contact guru of track and field. And, you know, Nate, I like him. He, he's a good guy. Um, but I didn't dare ask his permission on this because that would put him in a position where it's like, ah, maybe he would have to check with his board and his executive director. And just like it would just, you know, would be bad. So I'm announcing the race. But during the announcement, um, I wanted to clue in the audience on like, what's actually going on? So that's, I started to drop it around the third lap. Of, By the way, folks, you notice that Grant Fisher is right now on pace for something very close to four minutes. And, you know, you had to explain the whole deal about the mile being a little bit farther than 1600 meters, et cetera. And, um, and then I said, and you'll notice that there's an extra camera 9.34 meters down the track by the finish line. And Nate is standing next to me, looks over at that camera. And he looks at me <laughs> and um, a lot of tension there. And I was half worried that he would just say, stop it all now. Instead, he just stepped back and said, okay, we're going to see how this plays out. And um, he didn't get the record. I mean, he, he wrote the, the record for 1600. He ran four minutes, 0.28. His mile time was 401.66. He didn't break four. 
He would do that, I think, was it two or three weeks later down in St. Louis. But um, he came close. I maintain uh, the weather was a little bit breezy at that point. It was a really kind of a cool overcast day for a state meet. And also, we have, it's changing this year, thank God, but the stupid uh, two-turn stagger and distance racing. And he was out in lane six like way out in the middle of nowhere for that whole first lap. Whereas I maintained that if he had just been able to cut in normally and run where there was some noise and some excitement, then maybe he would have had that first lap be faster. And that could have been the difference. I don't know. But uh, yeah, that race call really sticks with me um, just because it was so different. Uh, but there's been some fun moments. I mean, I love announcing that meet. I love it when you see something jaw dropping, like a, a couple years ago, the, um, the state record in the hurdle is 1316 by Grace Stark and, uh, you know, running over to the wind gauge, you know, cause I, I've got to, uh, I'm not going to announce it as a record unless we got a legal wind on it. And, uh, so th those moments are fun. Cause I could, you know, during the run to the wind gauge, I could hear someone up in the stands just shouting out, Oh my God, she must've broke the record. Look, he's running to the wind gauge. <laughs> so, there's a lot of good times at that meet. I was there and I, I think I had heard through the grapevine as well, but to hear you retell it with such detail and passion was, was awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, you're welcome. I'm, I'm, I still can't believe I didn't get in trouble. Um, <laughs> after the race, Nate Hampton came up to me and slapped me on the back and said, that was fun. And that was the only thing the MHSA ever said about that. That was fun. So. Yeah, it's cool. I think it's cool to hear you talk about the energy of the state track meet because my my favorite thing to always cover when I was covering high school sports down in Ohio was the postseason track. I mean, partly because I'm a runner, so I was going to be interested in it. But I just love the energy of uh, the state track meet of Ohio, and they do it a little differently than mm -hmm. Michigan. And they have they have three divisions, and it's just like they have three levels to get there. So they have district regionals and then states, and it's a two day event. And I just I always thought it was like kind of is like easier for like media to cover maybe easier for like fans to go to and i don't know if there's been like discussions um you know around for like the state of michigan to kind of like do something similar or have you heard anything like that or uh well, the way we do it now is horrible um and there have been discussions in the past and i, I can't put a year on it but i would like to say we're maybe 20 years past when it really got serious but um they did polls of the coaches I believe they agreed in concept on a uh, two-day state meet, bringing all the divisions together at one place. And the, the thought was that the only site in the state that could host that meet and have enough parking center would be Ypsilanti's Reinerson Stadium. And so it almost got there, really came very, very close. And in the end, it was just destroyed by the one thing that holds back our sport and so many things at the high school level in Michigan is just self-interest. It was... Um, Schools complaining, well, we would have to get hotels for a two-day meet, and that would cost us a lot of money, so we can't do that. Even though, you're right, it would sell the sport so much better, it would get so much more media coverage. Having everything in one place is a massive boon for media coverage for the sport. And, you know, I'm sure you've heard people complain, because that's what coaches do, but um, about MIS. There are MIS lovers and MIS haters, and there's still a lot of MIS haters out there, even though... We've been running on that course for as long, longer than any of those runners have been alive out there on any given year. But before it was at MIS for a 27 or so year period, the state cross country meet was 
in four different places. And we're ignoring the upper peninsula, but four different places on the lower peninsula. And so usually class A, class B might have a nice golf course or two to run on. Could be anywhere in the state just about. And inevitably class C, class D would be out in the middle of a cornfield running laps or something. Um, and they got hardly any coverage, but when it all came together, suddenly there's interviews with every runner on run Michigan. I mean, there's, it's so much easier for the media to cover it all. And I think cross country in terms of participation has had a huge boom since then. And um, yeah, I mean, a single site meet could um, have a huge effect on the track in the state of Michigan. I really think so, but will I think, will it happen anytime soon? I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I haven't heard discussions lately about it. Um, I think people kind of got so close the last time, then they just gave up. And it's really uh, sad. And the other thing where Ohio has an, on it, and we, we don't, where Ohio has an advantage on us, is the whole two-day aspect. Two days means better performances from the athletes. Um, we, especially if you look at some of the long sprinter types, we run the piss out of them at that state meet. They have to do so many events so close together. And that's what, as a result, some of our events, like um, the, uh, the four by two, the 300 meter hurdles, the 400 meters, our state meet times aren't what they should be. They don't match often what the kids have done in the regular season. And you see states like Ohio are so much faster than us because guess what? That kid didn't have to, that's not his kid's fourth race of the day. Um, you know, so two days allows a little bit more rest for athletes sometimes. And I think you'd see a good effect on the performances as a result. Absolutely. If we're trying to set these kids up who want to continue beyond high school to succeed, I mean, conference meets, the regional meets, the national meets of, of any level collegiately or pro, like you have multi-day meets, you have prelims, you have semis. And I agree with you. I think that we need some tinkering. We need some tinkering here in the state of Michigan. Kind of on that front, but for a different reason, obviously the MHSAA has had to have a huge overhaul this year in order to safely have, have seasons for both cross country and track. And, you know, I do have to say, I was incredibly pleased and pleasantly surprised with how cross country went. I think there was so much anxiety in the summer and we were unsure of what the season would look like. And ultimately for us to be able to still be competing at MIS and sure we had the split, you know, the split race, which, which might've cost us one of the greatest showdowns of, of the entire meet. But uh, I'm curious, how do you feel with, with the track season starting, you know, one week from yesterday, how do you think this spring outdoor season in Michigan will kind of pan out maybe similarly or differently to how cross country did? Oh, oh boy. In terms of whether we'll be able to pull it off successfully. Yeah. And the logistics and if we can still preserve, cause like I would say with the exception of the big invites, like Michigan state and Portage to me, cross country felt very, very similar. Mm-hmm. Sure. We had more dual meets. We had more small invites, but I felt like the state meet was, was pretty close. Like ab- obviously we would have loved that bigger, bigger race, but you know, I feel like our team North, I think we navigated a smaller race a little better. I mean, as a fan, I want to see, you know, um, Riley Huff and Hobbs Kessler kicking down this finish together. But, you know, I, I guess, yeah, my question is, do you think we can preserve that kind of similar feeling with track? 
I hope so. I hope so. That's a that's a good question. I'm seeing a lot of coaches scrambling to find meats, scrambling because meats are all under varying levels of uh, you know, limitations on how many people can, they can have there, et cetera. Um, but I think cross country taught a lot of our coaches some creative ways to, you know, have meets that uh, maybe in various sessions throughout the day, clear out the field, you know, have a few more schools come in in the evening, et cetera. Um, I suspect in terms of those mechanics, it's going to look pretty similar to what it has in the past. I hope so. Um, honestly, I, I, I have concerns about it still, but mostly from the, the COVID angle. I like to think I'm a little bit of a, a COVID realist with that. Yeah, um, it's like in state of Michigan, so many people and so many people in the sport have just kind of been able to normalize what's going on. Yeah, that we've lost almost 16,000 people in Michigan. Um, and it's like, oh, well, we can still do everything the way we were supposed to. And um, so that's that's been kind of a challenge for me because um, I, I have trouble kind of forgetting that all that has happened. And I'm also looking at... Uh, some of the current numbers are right now in Michigan, we're in the bright orange um, for our COVID rate is increasing. We're one of like, uh, I think seven states where it's considered to be an increasing COVID rate. And with talk of the UK variants and stuff, it's, I, I worry, I worry that uh, we might have another spike coming. So I honestly, I've got a couple of friends who make fun of me for this and they're calling me doomsday hollowa now because um, whenever they say, yeah, we're going to have a great state, you know, and I'm the one who will say, yeah, if we make it there. Um, I hope we do. I really, really hope we do. Um, and I hope it's basically a race between these variants of the COVID virus and the vaccine and how many people we can get vaccinated in time. Um, but so I'm feeling optimistic myself. I, I hope we can make it there, but uh, I think we should feel blessed for every weekend we get, you know, like this week, we're going to have a great indoor state meet and track. And I, you know, cross your fingers, knock on wood. Hopefully there's a lot more of that stuff coming, but we should be thankful for every opportunity to line up and hear a gun go off. I'm with you on that. Um, and I think that that realism is, is sorely needed, right? It's, it, it is tough to want to get excited, but also being, you know, being guarded with our, with our expectations. So mm -hmm. I guess I already mentioned him, but, you know, Hobbs Kessler, one of the biggest stories in track and field right now is, is how he, I'm going to use quotes, burst onto the scene. Uh, I think those who've been paying attention in Michigan were maybe not surprised that he's one of the best in the country, but nearly everyone was surprised at now the fact he is the best of all time at the high school indoor mile. What do you make of his astronomic rise? And have you ever seen anything like that before? I have not. It's, it's crazy. It's, um, it's absolutely insane. And I mean, yeah, for people in the know in Michigan, like we were aware that last summer he did the, the 408 and the 853 time trial situations. But even that from 853 to 357 is light years away from each other. I mean, the improvement has continued since then. Um, and there's honestly no sign of it stopping. I've never seen anything like that. Um, Grant Fisher's senior year, I got to see a lot of his workouts and talk a lot to his coach. And this is, this is an entirely different beast, um, a different sort of runner, uh, a much more ballistic runner, much more explosive runner. And Grant obviously has turned into, um, uh, you know, one of the world's best 5,000 and 10,000 meter runners with his recent performances, which are just mind blowing. But um, 
Yeah. I, I just today I watched uh, Hobbs do a track workout and um, it was something that I can't imagine that uh, Fisher would have been able to do as a senior, not even close. It was um, he was working out with uh, you know, for once or twice a week, he's working out with uh, national class runners. Uh, the rest of the time he's with his team, but um, he was running with Mason Furlick who recently ran a 1325, 5,000 meters and uh, Mitchell Black, who's a 148 guy, and um, he was with them the entire way until the last segment when he took off and he outran them. And with speed, I had never known that he'd had. I don't think he it was a it was a PR for, for 400 meters he ended up with. But this was after miles of, of speed work and miles of tempo work. Um, yeah, he's. Uh, He's the real thing. And I don't think we've seen yet what he can do. Um, I think that 357, as opposed to like, wow, that's the pinnacle of his high school career. That 357, I think, was just like an appetizer. Um, there's a lot more coming. Um, this week, I understand he's going to run a relay leg at the state indoor meet. And then uh, the week after that, he's going to run a two mile down in Myrtle Beach. And uh, I'm really excited for that two mile. Well, I. I just pulled up his Strava and I, he calls it my best workout ever. So I think we, we got to give the splits for, for the listeners. So Michigan workout, classic Ron Warhurst go-to. Um, so ran a 1600 and 423 mile tempo and 458. <laughs> and, and those are, those are hilly road tempos. Those are difficult. 314, 1200, 448 mile tempo, 205, 800. 446 mile tempo. And as you said, 50.3 in the 400, that is mind boggling. Yeah, that was, I mean, a lot of that's Ron Warhurst times and his times, our, our stopwatches work differently. I got him in 50.8 on that 400, you know, but uh, I, I timed track and field news, you know, conservative, make sure it's a record whereas uh, Ron's got his own way of timing. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's the, what he did today in that workout. That's, national class adult stuff that's um olympic trials type stuff that is not high school stuff and that's 50.8 he wasn't dying at the end of that he caught mitchell black he um mason furlick wasn't near them at that point um he could not even keep up with the temple but he caught mitchell black at the top of the last turn and just kept going and uh it looked like he continued to accelerate through the whole thing. It looked like if we had said, okay, do another lap, he'd say, okay, fine. But yeah, there's a lot more there at the, in the 800, the two mile, the mile. I'm just, I don't know what we're going to see, but it's going to be pretty amazing. I thought it was funny the other day. I got a text from Colin uh, because Hobbs took one of Colin's uh, Strava segment records. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I need to be okay with that one going. Um, yeah. Yeah. If you have to lose to someone, lose to him. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it, you know, having any Strava segment in Ann Arbor is, is a blessing just with, with the guys that are traipsing around the trails here. So I also yeah. think it's funny about when I just think about Hobbs Kessler, I don't, is he 18 now? Or is he still 17? He just turned 18, I think a couple of days ago. Okay. Well, anyways, I had a, I had a guest speaker in one of my teaching classes who is an English was an English teacher at community high school. And I just think it's funny how Hobbs is, was a 17 year old kid who ran that 357, but he still goes to school just like, just like anyone else. And the teacher is maybe starts out class and is like, Oh, how was everyone's weekend? And Hobbs is like sitting there. He's like, Oh yeah, I just, 
I just ran every once in a while, maybe want to talk about the Super Bowl. But Hobbs is thinking like, oh, I just ran a 357 mile. But I guess like in watching like TV interviews, uh, he seems like a pretty down to earth kid is kind of like all of this media attention maybe coming at him. And I maybe from your perspective and in interacting with him, uh, is that kind of like the, the vibe that you have gotten uh, from him? He's uh, yeah, he's remarkably centered. He's um, he's totally geeked and excited about the running and how well it's going for him. I mean, he just loves running. Um, and this week was a kid who, you know, not too long ago was unsure if he even wanted to be a runner. Um, but the sudden burst of fame, um, I think it helps that he's really grounded. It helps that uh, his parents are great with this. I mean, they, they're really in terms of directing him, guiding him and, and the young man they raised him to be. He's, um, he's really well-spoken. And I would, I would call it, I would definitely call him, uh, you know, runners by, by lot tend to be kind of introspective and, you know, on the intellectual side of the sports spectrum. And he's definitely of that ilk. He's a well-spoken, um, deep thinking guy. So yeah, I think he's in a good position to handle this. Um, when that 357 happened, I, uh, I texted his dad, um, cause we've known each other for a while, I texted his dad and, and said, okay, your life's about to change. And he brought that up uh, like last week. He said, yeah, it kind of has. But he said, finally, the media stuff is dying down. Finally, the interview requests, it's all dying down. We actually had kind of a calm week here. And he kind of indicated, yeah, but then he's going to run another race and it's going to start up all over again. (laughs) He's a good kid. He really is. I heard Coach Mike Smith of NAU talk about this with the Flow Track guys. Uh, on the broadcast yesterday and, and he was throwing at him a little bit. He was talking about Nico young, the superstar that he has nurtured to fourth or fifth place in the nation yesterday as a freshman. He basically said like, I'm finding myself having to undo like this pressure that you guys with cameras and microphones are putting on this kid. And I hope that Hobbs can, de- you know, be a kid and develop in a healthy way. Cause a lot of times you see these high school phenoms and, you know, sometimes they pan out and they become world champions like Donovan Brazier and, and sometimes they fade away. So it, it's good to sound like everything's going well for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And luckily he was spared that attention, you know, until he's a, his senior year. I mean, no one was looking to interview him when he was a freshman or a sophomore and barely as a junior. Um, yeah. It's nice that uh, it's kind of unusual that it came on so fast for him. But uh, it's nice he didn't have that glare of all the, you know, the cameras when he was 14. I've seen, I don't know, as, as a, you know, track and field journalist myself, I've had to interview my fair share of high schoolers. I just talked um, today to a Jaden Slade. I was talking to him right before I got on the line with you guys, um, the, the young man who broke the 200 meter national record down in Fayetteville. So I have to interview those high schoolers regularly, but um, it almost, I found it disturbing in the past because we don't do it that often at track and field news and we tend to do it to upperclassmen. And uh, then it's just a phone, a phone interview usually. And we write it up, we, you know, there's a written article, but um, I've seen these 14 year old girl phenomenons who pop a 1730 in cross country at some invitational and suddenly boom, there are cameras on them and they're on screen at, at that age. It just seems so young. It just, it's so much pressure on it. That, um, yeah. I, I, if I were a parent, if I am a parent, but if I were a parent of one of those kids, I'd be really, really concerned. It's um, tough to grow 
in that sort of circumstance and tough to keep it all in perspective. Maybe to segue uh, a little bit, uh, Paul, Paul McMullen uh, passed away a, a few weeks ago. And I admittedly did not, I had not heard of him much uh, before mm -hmm. I, I read the news, but um, I, as soon as I like saw that, I started kind of falling down the, the rabbit hole of some of his races and uh, lear learning a story about, I thought, I thought it was very interesting, you know, kind of like a blue collar guy from Cadillac there, the story of him uh, running over his toes with the lawnmower and then still coming back to run his best, best times of his career. And it was truly a tragedy that he was uh, passed away. But um, for, for your uh, maybe interactions with him in the sport, you know, what type of uh, ambassador for running, uh, not just for the sport, but just, uh, you know, for, for the state of Michigan in general, was he? Yeah. I mean, I was, I was as shocked as anyone when I got the news. I, I literally did not believe it at first because it came to, you know, just the day after his college coach, Bob Parks, had died. And it just was um, stunning. But uh, I guess I'd start out with, uh, obviously, a lot of people knew him better than I did, but I, I knew him pretty well. We didn't see each other without stopping and talking. And um, back when he was in his running days, I was interviewing him a lot back then. Uh, and um, he was human. I mean, like, like any human, you know, he had his share of demons and stuff that he dealt with. You know, no, no human's perfect. There's this tendency, you know, if someone dies young, that we, um, we make them into saints. And uh, um, I think that's probably a good thing. It's, it's a good thing that, uh, you know, when you, when you pass on, especially at an early age, people remember you for your contributions. And his contributions were huge. He was a man of just crazy immense energy in everything he did. He was like, he was 100%. And uh, what he did with his Chariots of Fire Youth Track Club these days, I, you know, I ran into him last fall, I think it was, at a cross country meeting, we were talking about them. And uh, yeah, the enthusiasm and the energy has always been there. Um, I remember um, back in, I'm trying to remember what year the toe incident was in, 90, 90 it was 97. 97? Yeah. Okay. I think. <laughs> so, somewhere around there, okay, I had, uh, we had bought a house in Ann Arbor, my wife and I. And um, Paul and I had been talking about, uh, you know, maybe doing a book together, just bouncing around ideas because he liked my writing. I'd written some major things on him. And so he was like, maybe I'll do an autobiography. Maybe I'll, maybe you can ghostwrite it. So we were just bouncing that around over beers now and then. And um, so we were going to have a meeting to talk about that. And it was at my house and um, he came over and he was with his uh, first wife then, Jill McMullen, who was, um, Jill, the former Jill Stamison, who was a national class runner in her own right. And um, they came over just to talk and hang out. And uh, Paul found out, you know, it's a new house for us, but the backyard, we had this backyard that was totally taken over by these horrible bushes. And I had to get them all out. So I was working on this and it was a big job. And uh, he, as soon as he heard bushes, ax, saws, I'm in. And boom, we go to the backyard and there he is. He's swinging an ax and he's tearing out roots with me. And um, we worked all day on that stuff. And he just didn't, didn't let up. And this was after his accident, after um, he lost those toes. And uh, we remember it clearly. It's a, it's a special story in our family lore because my oldest daughter, who's now, she's a mother herself. Um, she, uh, at the time, she was about six or so. 
And we had a, a play structure in our backyard that I had assembled. And she was up in her fort looking down on us. And um, she had heard the stories about Paul McMullen and she'd heard about his accident. She was horrified at age six, like, oh my gosh, he lost his toes and he's a runner. And um, so he's swinging the ax in our backyard and she is screaming in a panic from her fort, Paul, don't chop off your other toes. <laughs> <laughs> and he just laughed and kept swinging the ax. And uh, I think Jill, we had a, I, I think my wife was at work or something. And um, I think Jill was inside the house, ended up babysitting uh, our, our two-year-old at the time. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's one of my fondest memories of him just because he, um, that kind of energy, that kind of crazy, that, hey, oh, can I swing an ax? I'm in. That, uh, that was McMullen. He was, um, he was a character, but he was a positive character. And, uh, and God, what a runner. If you saw him compete. He brought a level of aggression to the to the fifteen hundred that was just um, it was nice to see. I remember one time is before the um, ninety six Olympics. I, uh, he and I had a talk, an interview at some point, and uh, <clears throat> he had won the Olympic trials, and he was not in the same class as um, I think it was uh, was it El Garouge that year in uh, ninety six. Um, that's a thing. I've been to Olympics and stuff, but uh, that sounds right. El Garouge and uh, I guess 1500. I'm thinking like maybe Turgot, Gabriel Selassie, though that's longer distances. Yeah, yeah. So it was El Garouge. Okay. And the thing about Hikam El Garouge, um, he was a baby of the, uh, the Diamond League circuit at the time, the Grand Prix circuit. <coughs> Everything was orchestrated. Every race was paced. Every race was completely staged. And you very rarely saw him simply in a rough and tumble race with equals. Um, he was just all about getting world record bonuses as often as he could. And that kind of running was something, if you knew Bob Parks, the old Eastern Michigan coach, Bob Parks hated that. He hated time trialing. He just hated the idea of get, having to get NCAA qualifiers. It's like, why can't kids race their way to the NCAAs? And he pushed so hard on that, that that helped lead to the creation of the NCAA regionals, which solved some of the problem. Um, you know, because schools like Eastern, perhaps there, there were schools that couldn't afford to fly their distance kids to Stanford for a beautiful race in early May and to fly their weight throwers here and to fly their jumpers to some other place just to get all maximal qualifying opportunities. So that whole anti-time trial attitude was perfect for Paul. So Paul absorbed that completely. And Paul hated time trialers. He hated them. And Hikamal Garouche was the, the poster boy of time trialers. And um, so I was talking with uh, McMullen uh, after the trials, after he won the trials. And he was on paper, not in El Garouche's league at all. He was about six seconds behind him. There's just no way he was an equal to him in a race. But um, he said, I remember him saying, he's like, you know what El Garouge would do if he got an elbow? If he just tried to pass me and he caught an elbow the wrong way, he would crumble. <laughs> he absolutely crumble out there. And I'm like, yeah, he would. Would you do it? He goes, I might. <laughs> I mean, all, crazy. In the 1500, elbows are thrown all the time. I mean, you know, what happens in the pack stays in the pack sort of thing. Um, so I remember watching that Olympic race thinking, uh, Boy, it'd be so great if uh, 
I would, I would just kind of half hoping I'd see something like that. But um, yeah, it never, it never happened. They never really met up that close enough for a, a El Garouge, all 120 pounds of them to run into McMullen's 170 pound elbow or whatever. Um, but it would have been interesting to see a real rough and tumble race. And I think uh, Paul would have loved to have the opportunity. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So dynamic character, huge uh, asset to, to running in Michigan. And for it to come from a guy who was a 419 high school miler who barely got recruited, it's a great story. I mean, he lived a great story. Quite the legacy. Thank you again for for sharing that. I'm going to ask you a pretty difficult question because I think for a man of your acumen, this could be pretty hard. What is your Mount Rushmore of Michigan runners? And to be nice to you, I'll give you a sprint Mount Rushmore, a distance Mount Rushmore and maybe a field Mount Rushmore. And this, this can be, if you want to do like men and women together, or if you want to like separate oh, that, what, whatever you want to do. I'm just curious to hear who you think are the, the all time greats. God, that, that is so hard. Um, ah, and I had no advance warning on this. So your, your public needs to know that this has been, this is an ambush. Um, <laughs> Let me start with, let me, let me go with sprinters first, only because, you know, your, your, your audience, I think is maybe mostly distance runners. So we'll, we'll leave them waiting for their dessert at the end. Okay. <laughs> but uh, for sprinters, you got to go with Eddie Tolan, double Olympic champion. Um, we had other double Olympic champions like Ralph Craig, but I'm not going to, he doesn't get the mountain. I mean, gold medals were cheap back, back in those days, but Eddie Tolan, the 1932 double Olympic gold medalist from Castec, he's one of them. Um, Henry Carr, Henry Carr from Detroit Northwestern, who ran for Arizona State, and he became Olympic champion in the 200 meters, and he anchored a world record uh, relay for his second gold medal. Um, Henry Carr has to go on that, too. Uh, Quick aside, uh, I won't go long, but I remember talking to one of my old-time friends who's now passed about Henry Carr because he watched him back in the day, and he's like, Oh my God, Henry Carr, if you had seen him at the state meet his senior year, oh, he was the most amazing runner ever, blah, 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 blah. And, uh, and then he went out to Arizona State and they ruined him. And I said, wait, he, he, he was an Olympic champion. He'd say, oh yeah, but he was way better in high school. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sprint, we'll include hurdles in that group. Then you have to go with Hayes Jones, the Olympic champ from 64. And in the high hurdles, and you have to go with Rex Colley, the Olympic champ in the 400 girls, also from 64. 64 was a really, really good year for Michiganders. But um, n- sadly, nothing in the speed events. We've had some good speedsters since then. Um, guys like Darnell Hall, who run, you know, 44, 34 in the 400, et cetera. But, you know, when you can put four legendary gold medalists on your Mount Rushmore, that's good. So that's the men's Mount Rushmore. There's got to be a different one for women. Um, for women, let me see. You can go more modern for women. Kyra Jefferson, the collegiate record holder in 200 meters, who still, she comes back to Detroit all the time and she runs clinics for Detroit youth and stuff. So she's still sharing and trying, you know, helping to build that legacy. So yeah, Kyra's definitely there. Um, hmm. Oh, then it gets tricky. Uh, Going to go with, ooh. Got a couple Olympic medalists, Kim Turner McKenzie, Judy Brown King in the hurdles. Mm. 
Um, oh my gosh. Kendall Bayston, almost purely on what she did in high school. She's holds her state record in the 452.02. So probably some combination of them for the women's Mount Rushmore. Okay, now distance, distance, distance. Good luck. <laughs> yeah. So are we talking career achievement lifetime or only high school careers? I'll leave that to you. I'm just going to say the greats. You, you decide. <laughs> greats. Man, I'm going to leave off some legend. Dathan Ritznine has to be up there. Three-time Olympian. Um, 12.56, 5,000-meter guy. 207 marathoner. I mean, Dathan did it all. Except he never broke the four-minute mile, which is crazy. Because you got to think, when he was running his 12.56, he could have thrown away a four-minute mile on an easy day. Um, okay. Got him. Um, let's just say it's too, you know, Kessler is too young. We're not even going to consider him. Mm -hmm. um, and that's mostly on potential right now. So let's uh, – we put Grant Fisher up there. He hasn't really had a chance to shine internationally yet. So it might be a little early for Grant Fisher. Um, Earl Jones. Earl Jones, 800-meter bronze medal from the 1984 Olympics. Um, massive, massive talent. Uh, yeah, so Earl Jones goes up there. Um, got a good Earl Jones story, but later on. Um, McMullen, Paul McMullen probably should have a place up there, I would think. Oh, God, I feel like I'm really forgetting someone. You had Herb Lindsay, who was doing, was the king of the roads in the early 80s, world half marathon record holder. And we're going to leave him off, probably. Doug Brown, American record holder in the steeplechase. Um, amazing career. Um, Greg Meyer, oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. uh, Boston Marathon champion. Yeah, let's put Greg Meyer up there. Uh, when I was in high school, we piled into a car and came to uh, University of Michigan's track and tennis building. And we got to watch him be the first Michigander to break the four minute mile. And that was one of the thrills of my high school fanboy career, I guess. <laughs> that was great. And years later, I tried to contact him or I contacted him and said, I'd like to interview you about that because that was just so meaningful for me. And he's like, dude, I barely remember it. It was nothing for me. <laughs> <laughs> he's like i seriously he's like i don't remember the race hardly at all <laughs> um uh so that four we got dathan we got um earl jones earl jones paul mcmullen oh donovan um we gotta put brazier up there he's young but world champion american record holder yeah that would be really foolish to leave him off mm -hmm. but even so our michigan in the distances we are rich. We've always been rich. And um, yeah, there's a lot of great things out there that we didn't touch. Women's side. Ah, women's even tougher, but um, mm. Lisa Larson Weidenbeck, Boston Marathon champion, three-time Olympic trials, fourth placer, which is particularly heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. uh, but she was, she was a phenomenon over the years. Um, else do I like? Uh, maybe, yeah. Delisa Walton. 
Delisa Walton Floyd was fifth place in the 1988 Olympic 800 meters. She ran 157. And um, yeah, she was a phenomenal talent. She ran at the same high school regional I did my senior year. And I remember seeing her and thinking, oh my God, I'm in love. Um, <laughs> amazing. But to see her career take off and, and mine plummet. Um, yeah, she was amazing. Um, boy. You think, oh, you think Erin Finn, there's, I think there might be more to come with Erin Finn. I don't think she's done yet. I know she's doing med school right now, but I really will not be surprised if she emerges in a few years as one of America's better marathoners. Um, so I could include Erin Finn there. And then, um, hmm, maybe Sue Addison. Um, Sue Addison was, uh, never got much attention in the, in the 80s, but I mean, the girl, she ran a 423 mile um, back in the 80s. Uh, which was just phenomenal. And 404, I think it was for 1500 meters. And so while people have gone faster than that, like uh, um, Shannon Osika ran a 401 for 1500 meters last year. Um, I think the fact that uh, uh, Sue Edison did that back then, and she was uh, not an NCAA champion, but she was a AIAW, the, pre, the forerunner of the NCAA for women. So she was a national champion. I would, I would say her, let's put her on the mountain. Yeah, that's good. We'll yeah. stick there with the mountain. All right, awesome. <laughs> that was that was incredible uh we're still learning the the podcast like etiquette probably should have sent that to you beforehand but man watching it in real time the gears turn was was something so oh i know i forgot people though i i know i did uh, we probably don't have like that big of a following yet so you will probably won't get too many emails that'll uh, give you a hard time <laughs> all right <laughs> I know we've, we've kept you, but I, I got to ask you to share that, that Earl Jones story. My, my girlfriend's dad, John Reed, ran at Eastern Michigan, and I believe roomed with Earl Jones, so he would be delighted to hear you share uh, the story. Okay. Earl Jones, yeah. He, um, according to the stories, you know, he, Earl was, um, he was discovered by his high school coach, Mickey Turchik. Mickey was uh, driving someplace, and he saw this kid running along the road. He just, like, kind of followed him in his van finally pulled the kid over and said, Hey, 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 who, who are you? Where do you go to school? All that stuff. And, um, I think, uh, Earl ended up going to that high school and doing some things, but rewind just a couple of few years previously. Um, I went to Allen park high school and we had locally a decent reputation as a bit of a running school. Um, even though there was just like crazy lack of continuity, I, in, I ran, um, seven seasons of tracking cross country in high school. I started uh, winter of my freshman year. And in that time, I had six different coaches. So we had your know, crazy, insane turnover. Um, it's kind of like, is this spring? Okay, who's our coach this time? And they, you know, they find some guy in the street. Hey, um, I'm your new coach. It, literally, my senior year, the, the new coach came in and said, I'm a sprint guy. Are you the distance guy I've heard about? And I'm like, well, I'm the only distance runner left. Yeah, he's good. You know what you're doing? I'm like, yeah. He goes, keep doing that. And that was my coaching my senior year. <laughs> um but uh, our school had a decent reputation for running. And I remember at one point, there was a kid that was disgruntled. He was disgruntled with the coaching in his own high school district. And he just thought he just clashed with the coach. Um, and so somehow he arranged to come to our school for his senior year. He did, some, he did some decent running for us and became a good friend. And keep in mind, this was a high schooler complaining about his old high school coach. And so kids will say crazy things. But one of the things he said really stuck with me. He said, oh, my God, that coach, he has us do such crazy stuff. I, 
I, I can't do it. I couldn't do it anymore. He's like, I would, I would find myself like cheating in workouts and getting out of doing the stuff he was asking us to do because it was just, it was absolutely insane. But then this guy, even though he was kvetching about his old high school coach, he sat back, he's a brilliant, brilliant man. He ended up being a, a big success in the business world. But he, he said, you know what though? If he ever finds someone who will do everything he says, he's going to have an Olympic champion. And go three years forward, he's got uh, Earl Jones. And two years after leaving that high school program, Earl Jones had an Olympic medal and uh, just a phenomenal talent. But it, we were always like, we always, they always came back to us. We we're like, Kevin, you kind of warned us that someday that guy, that coach might produce an Olympian. It's like, yeah, yeah. He found someone that would do it. I wouldn't do it. <laughs> Who would do it? <laughs> We have a couple end of podcast questions, but already you've given us so many, so many gems. So we truly appreciate your time. Uh, just a couple quick, quick hitters, if you wouldn't mind. So our podcast miles in the mitten, in addition to sharing the stories of Michigan runners and Michigan based runners, we like to brag a little bit about our state and how beautiful it is to run in. Could you tell us your favorite place to run in Michigan and why? Oh, I could. Yeah. Um, it's, for me, it's, it's easy and I can't run anymore. Um, it was about four years ago, I exploded my perineal tendon and it just cannot, can't even be repaired. Um, so that ended what had been 35 years of running um, with that I just loved. And sadly, I discovered what I loved most about running and running in Michigan towards the end. And I really wish I could go back and spend my first few decades doing it, but I don't know if you're familiar with the Pottawatomie Trail in Pinckney Recreation Area. Mm -hmm. You know, it's an 18-mile trail and it's hilly and it's it's very well known among mountain bikers, but it's a it's a challenging run. And um that was my heaven for running. There are certain sections of that I just I would just zone out and I loved running out there. Um, especially on a weekday morning, especially if it were a little bit rainy and you'd find no one else out there. And you can just be in the middle of the woods, um, hills, and you got to know every hill intimately and every downhill intimately, where to put your feet so you don't trip. And um, I remember talking um, my um, daughter at one point, I had a um, little heart episode a number of years ago. And I remember the doctor said to me, he said, um, you know, you're the, actually the classic example of someone who's going to die while running because, you know, I had this weird heart thing that they fixed, but, uh, that otherwise completely healthy lifestyle, completely healthy diet, complete, no sign of any heart disease, nothing like that. But I just one little ticking time bomb that they thankfully diffused. But the doctor said, you're the guy, you're the guy that dies in a road race. You're the guy that dies on a training run. I'm like, oh, gee, thanks. Um, and I remember talking with my daughter about that afterwards. And she said, what would you do? And I'm like, man, I just hope it's on the potto. I know exactly the tree. I just want to sit under that tree and say goodbye. And she's like, dad, that's really freaking morbid. Don't, don't. <laughs> but yeah, the Pato would be the one run I would do over and over again. Awesome. Thank you. I got one for you. Um, so you, you have published uh, several books and you have given us a lot of uh, crazy stories already, but what's just like a, maybe like the quirkiest like fact you've ever uncovered uh, from, from writing all those, those books over the years? Oh, quirkiest fact um i tell you 
one one of the projects I'm working on now, and hopefully you'll see it in book form soon, is a it's a real deep dive into the Division One track meet, into the history of it. And we've written our history of the state meet and track, but there we only cover the winners. And I thought it would be cool, just for my own purposes as an announcer, to have a book that has every guy that ever made Allstate, you know, going back to 1895. And so that's what I'm compiling. And right now I'm at 1957. And um moving towards, towards the present. I've done, you know, 1895 to 1957. And, uh, you know, you go through and, you know, digging up those names, cause you had to dig up the first names. Cause back then they didn't put the first names in the results. So every athlete, I'd figure out their first name. I'd f- try to figure out what year they were in school. And so in that digging, you, you turn up weird little things sometimes, um, good news, bad news about people, but one really, um, uh, I don't know if this would check you as very weird, but, uh, there was one, uh, he placed, what year was it, 1948, maybe? He was fourth place in a Class A 880-yard run, the half mile, for, from Dearborn High School, a guy named Papard. And um, so I tried to figure out, okay, what's his first name? So I finally, I tracked down the Dearborn yearbook from that year, and they got a track picture. And it's like, Smith and Papard joking on one of their runs. It's got the picture of two guys run. It doesn't t- tell their first names. Two guys are running and goofing off like every high school team on earth has. Um, and these were the two jokesters of the team. And I'm like, God, he looks a little bit familiar. But and then I, I turned to his senior picture and that's where I get his first name. It's like George. I'm like, George. And I look at the picture. It's like, holy crap. And if you're this probably before your time, but if you're an old movie fan, have you ever seen the movie Breakfast at Tiffany's? You know, Audrey Hepburn, the classic female role, but role her counterpart her male counterpart in that movie the male lead was george papard and uh i'm like that's the guy from breakfast at tiffany's and he ran track for dearborn high school who knew <laughs> I, I never knew that and uh yeah so that that was you know every few weeks i turn up some weird little nugget like that and i tell my wife like hey guess what guess what i found out chick like, great more news about some dead guy right I'm like, yeah <laughs> but you know that's what i do <laughs> Well, you, de- you delivered on that one. Yep. That's a pretty good, good fact. <laughs> um, and I guess our, our last one, who is one person you're dying to interview or to write a story on right now? That's a good question. I've been very, obviously very spoiled in that regard as a journalist. Um, I've, I've gotten to talk to a lot of people. Who am I dying? Um, yeah. You know what? Let me not give you a name. Um, okay. And, and that's because, um, you know, generally if there's someone I need to talk to for my magazine, generally we can usually track them down. Um, I think the last year there's only been one person we haven't been able to get through to. And it was just, I don't know. It was a strange situation. But um, the, the interviews I most enjoy are the ones sometimes that I don't see coming. I don't, uh, you know, it's not based on like, do I want to interview you more because uh, how fast you are, or you set a world record or an American record or whatever. Um, but the interviews I'm most fond of afterwards are the ones where it's like, oh my gosh, I had the greatest time talking to this person. Um, and we talked about so many things besides track. And so it's those interviews where you realize that the person on the other side is more than just a PR. They're more than just a medal. When you realize that, wow, they're a human and they actually shared that human side of themselves with me. And um, like, I remember this, uh, I think it was in the fall, this last fall, I interviewed uh, Don Harper Nelson, who was the, um, 
uh, Olympic champion in 2008 in the hurdles. And she's making a comeback. She's 37. She's got a kid. She's making this comeback. And uh, we had a talk and I just, you know, I didn't really know her when she was doing um, her Olympic uh, running back in 2008. Cause at that point I was back teaching full-time and I didn't return to full-time track writing until 2015. Um, but wow. Talking with her, like after for a week, I was kind of on cloud nine. Like that was the greatest talk. I feel like I made a friend. She was like the funniest person I've ever talked to. Um, and so those are the interviews that I really love. Um, and you never know when you're going to get them. You, you just never know. You, you call up someone, you're a total stranger, and maybe maybe you're disappointed because, wow, I always wanted to talk to this runner, but he's really kind of a jerk, uh, <laughs> which happens rarely, but it happens. Um, or, you know, talking to high schoolers is always kind of a crapshoot. You never know what you're going to get. The average high schooler isn't ready to be interviewed. They don't have enough life experience. They don't have enough vocabulary to get through an interview. It's like, okay, here, I'm going to feed you a question here. Let's see if we can get an answer that's more than yes or no. Um, but sometimes you get a kid who's just funny, a kid who can talk. Uh, like Jalen Slade I talked to today, he could talk. Um, yeah, but you never know. The good interviews, you just never really know when they're going to come. But when they do, they're just, uh, they're just amazing. Some years ago, I talked to Jenny Simpson. And I promised her, uh, you know, this is going to be a 30 minute talk max. And it was, she's a great interview. She's one of the most brilliant people. She can speak in full. If you transcribe what she says, she can speak in full, long, complex paragraphs with very complex sentences and not the slightest um or ah uh or um, grammatical problem. I and mean, she speaks like, like a great writer writes. Um, and uh, I looked up at my watch and I'm like, oh my crap, sorry. We've been going 45 minutes and I promised you only 30. And she says, oh, no, 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 no. She said, let's keep going. We're cleaning the garage today and this is way easier. <laughs> so, yeah, talks like that. Those are the fun ones. But uh, I thank you guys for uh, having me on this. Appreciate it. Of course. I know we, we could probably go all day and just ask you about all the, the stories and that you, you have uh, throughout the years. But. Just again, you know, thank, thank you so much for coming on to talk with us. And uh, maybe we'll have you on again someday to give us uh, some more stories. That yeah, was fun. Feel free anytime. But uh, good luck with this. And uh, we'll be looking forward to it. Thank you, Jay. All right, awesome. Thanks. All right. You guys take care.